Welcome everyone to the Medspiration Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nav, and this is episode number 19 with Dr. Shafali Sabari. I've asked hundreds of mothers and fathers, what do you really want? The answer I most often hear is, I just want my children to be happy. But very often, there are boxes that parents want their children to check first. A college degree, a successful career, marriage, a nice house, and then their own kids. Do you believe meeting parents' expectations actually brings happiness to a child? As a clinical psychologist, it is my privilege to help people explore their inner worlds, their psychological terrain. Hour after hour, I hear thoughts, emotions, feelings. This is my data. This data helps me to better understand what is it that emotionally paralyzes us? How is it that we may thrive at this thing called life? Inevitably, these stories turn to childhood. They speak of a common theme, a similar rhythm. They speak of a hunger that only a parent can appease, of a thirst that only a parent can quench. The other day, this tall, strapping man in his mid-40s, he came to explore his particularly difficult relationship with his father. Yes, we grapple with problems of our childhood long into adulthood. And he said to me, in a voice that turned plaintive, that of an eight-year-old, he said, will I ever meet my father's expectations? Will he ever accept the man I've become today? Or will I always be a no-good loser? He was seeking, searching, yearning for an approval that may never come. And what about the woman in her 30s, so beautiful, talented, successful? She screamed, what is wrong with me? Why am I this messed up? You tell me it's because my father overdosed when I was four. But when will this pain fade? And the woman who picks on her skin constantly, a lifetime habit, you see, she said these, pointing to the rageful scars on her body, these began the day after my mom said, I was the reason daddy left us. Help me, each one of them silently shouts at me. Who am I? Am I whole? Am I worthy? Do I matter? Life's essential questions. But no matter what I say to them, my words do not seep in, because they've internalized another voice, you see, that of their parents, an early voice. Now try erasing that first blueprint. It runs wild, rampant, chaotic, unpredictable. It comes to be the way we define ourselves. It becomes the air we breathe. Parents, few hold a greater power or more immense a responsibility. And this is why I'm here today, to propose that we occupy the role of parenthood in an entirely different way, with a renewed curiosity, a heightened awareness, a transformed commitment. Because nothing like parenthood that needs to be at the forefront of our global consciousness. It is the core, the linchpin, that affects how our children will thrive. Everything, how they take care of themselves, each other, the earth, show compassion, tolerate differences, handle their emotions, create, invent, innovate. This is where global transformation begins. We cannot expect our children to embody an enlightened consciousness if we parents haven't dared to model this ourselves. 
It all starts with us and how we parent. As an Ivy League trained clinical psychologist, Dr. Shafali lifted the veil on the deeper meaning of parenting in her groundbreaking bestseller, The Conscious Parent. It means that we no longer look at our children as an extension of who we are. Because when we do that, we just unleash all our emotional baggage onto them. Today, Dr. Shafali integrates Eastern mindfulness with Western psychology in her work with families around the world. Dr. Shafali says, when our children challenge us, instead of getting triggered to control them, we can think of it as an opportunity for our own evolution. You're just so consumed by your need to be loved back, by your need to feel love yourself. It's all about you, you, you. So let's put love aside. And now let's talk about consciousness. Because love without consciousness becomes need, dependency. It becomes control in the name of love. And that's what we're doing with our children. But I love you. That's so big, the producer's writing it down. <laughs> that's so big. That I is love huge. You. Love without consciousness becomes need and dependency. And control. And control. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're having a blessed day. Thank you so much for pressing play and tuning into the Medspiration Podcast, where our goal is to help you bridge the gap between medical science and your mind, body, and spirit. In today's Mother's Day special, we're bringing you a New York Times best-selling author who goes by the name of Dr. Shafali Sabari. Her work is world-renowned and her philosophies are something that my wife and I have been integrating into our personal life and our life as family medicine physicians for years now. She's been dubbed Oprah Winfrey's favorite parenting coach and I know without a doubt in my mind that this episode will set up anybody and everybody to become the best possible parents that they can become. If you'd like to add to this conversation, please message or tag us on Instagram. The handle is at Medspiration. And if you've been enjoying this content, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe to our podcast and go and rate it five stars on iTunes. Leave a review and let us know which parts of our episodes you enjoy most. It really would mean the entire world to our team. And now, without further ado, let the Medspiration begin. Dr. Shafali, welcome to the Medspiration podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor and privilege to introduce to you one of the world's leading experts when it comes to parenting. I've read two of her best-selling books, The Conscious Parent and The Awakened Family, and I can say with ease that she's one of my greatest medspirations, and I cannot wait to unleash countless jewels of wisdom today on our episode. Dr. Shafali, without further ado, can you please introduce yourself to our audience out there? Sure. I'm a clinical psychologist and uh, I do a lot of individual coaching of clients. I have my own practice online and I'm also the author of three books on conscious parenting and mindful living. And I do a lot of courses online. You can find them on my website. And, uh, you know, I'm a teacher. I go around speaking. You know, that's what I do. And I'm a mom. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, we're we're huge fans of yours here at Medspiration. So today my intention is to be able to dissect your mind and to discover how myself one day and parents all across the world can learn to shepherd our children to their greatest expression. So are you ready to rock and roll? Sure. Thank you. All right. Well, question number one, I've, I've heard you say that the parent-child relationship is at the root of every other problem in the world. Why do you think that is? Well, I think... Uh, I said that to underscore the power of this union and 
in the early formative years of our experience, it's the parent who holds the primary influence. And when those early years are neglected or disadvantaged or traumatized, then the child grows up with a very shaky and faulty foundation in terms of basic trust, basic surrender, basic connection um, and power. And because their power has been taken away through the trauma, their trust has been destroyed because of the neglect in the relationship. The template that the child creates of the world is that the world is not a safe place. The mm -hmm. world can't be relied on. People are not trustworthy. And so then they develop ongoing shaky relationships based on this first paradigm, right? And they treat others in a way um, as a representation of that paradigm. So either they see themselves as a victim or they victimize others because of that early primary disconnect. However, when that first relationship is powerfully connected and loving and safe and predictable and comfortable, then the child develops an ease in their body in the world and they feel like they are worthy, they feel they're valued, and they feel like the world is a trustworthy place. I 100% agree. I think the data is catching up to that. It's been proven that child's attachment and attunement with its caregiver is directly related to the child's brain development. The ACEs study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences study, also showed a link between childhood trauma and the development of chronic diseases later on in life. And just now, recently, in December 2019, a paper that was published in the scientific journal Nature, which many physicians are calling one of the most important discoveries in the last few decades, it linked more than 50% of all global chronic diseases and chronic inflammatory conditions to our childhood experiences. So this has really opened up a space for us to begin connecting the importance of the beginning of life and how it directly impacts the end of life. So as we enter with that, I was hopeful you could share your definition of consciousness with us and how conscious parenting plays a role in all of this. So consciousness, that's a big topic, but to make it simple, consciousness is the capacity to be aware of yourself as an agent of co-creation in your life. So you become aware that your thoughts, your feelings are coming from your own belief systems and your conditioned past. And you begin to realize that you are a co-participant in your life. So you begin to examine yourself, you know, where is this belief system coming from? How did I co-create my reality? And you become conscious, which is more than what we're currently doing. Currently, we're just sentient. We're following the ways that were prescribed to us, but we are mostly not doing it in a conscious way. Consciousness is becoming aware that we do have direction, we do have will, and that we are mostly living a conditioned, robotic, patterned life. So a conscious life is one that seeks to break through robotic patterns to find a unique imprint of our most authentic way of being. So it takes breaking away from paradigms that were conditioned, finding authentic paradigms of living. And a conscious parent, similarly, is one who is aware that they are co-creating the energy within the parent-child relationship. And it's their onus, it's their obligation to examine those patterns and simply don't put it on the kid because you have them. 
if you have a dream, don't just put it on your kid. If you have an expectation, don't put it on your kid. Examine yourself to see how these dreams and expectations are coming from your own conditioned past, from your own emotional wounds, and don't force your kid to take care of them for you. Absolutely. So is it safe to assume that uh, parenting unconsciously is where we all begin? And if so, um, how can we begin infusing consciousness into our parenting strategies? Yes, very fair to say that we all begin with unconsciousness and continue with a high degree of unconsciousness. Mm -hmm. So to wake up into consciousness, to make that switch, to make the needle move, it's really each person's individual path and desire to live a more honest life. You know, if you want to keep blaming your kid or you want to blame your partner, that's fine. But it's not the most honest way to live. The no. most honest way to live is to take responsibility and look in the mirror. So a conscious parent looks in the mirror and says, how am I creating this with my child? How am I imposing my dreams and fantasies on my kid that are not my kids to carry out for me? Mm -hmm. And the conscious parent is trying or aspiring to be the most honest they can be. You make that switch because you begin to see that your child is perhaps not living to their destiny. You're, you're seeing that you're imposing your will. You're getting too angry. You're getting too reactive. And you desire to make a change and stop that pattern zombie way of reacting. And you want to have more consciousness in your day-to-day -day life. So it really is an awakening within each person. And you can't really judge people for not awakening. And you can't predict when someone will awaken. Each one awakens when they want to because they've made a decision. Hey, I want to live a more aligned life. I don't want to react. I don't want to yell at my kids. I don't want to scream at my kids. I want to have a more peaceful connection. I want to connect. I want to play. I want to be happy. So it's those kind of strivings that cause one to look for a new paradigm and a new way of living. And that's how they come to consciousness. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, and you mentioned in your book, The Conscious Parent, that coming from unconsciousness ourselves, we bequeath our children to our own unresolved needs and unmet expectations. The nature of unconsciousness is such that until metabolized, it will seep through generation after generation. So how can we begin to metabolize this and potentially end these cycles? It takes a lot of courage to look at oneself in the mirror, to look at your patterns, and to begin to do the work with a coach or a psychologist to heal those wounds of unworthiness that we are now putting on our children. You know, the reason why we control our children is because we feel out of control. The reason why we want to own and possess anybody is because we feel more significant when we are owning another per person. It gives us value, it gives us power. All of this is because we don't have that inner power on our own. So part of the healing is going back to claim that inner power and begin to live in our own authentic empowerment. When we begin to do that, we don't need our children to be a reflection of us. We don't need our children for anything, really, because we are full and complete on our own. So as we heal our own emotional wounds, we disrupt the cycle of constantly putting on our children the ancestral pain and legacy. We break the pattern. So that may mean that our lives will be disruptive a little bit, but that's okay because you're breaking the pattern for future generations. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned to connect with your children, connect with yourself. 
And you wrote, if you want to enter into a state of pure connection with your child, you can achieve this by setting aside any sense of superiority, like you mentioned. Uh, by not hiding behind an egoic image, you will be able to engage your child as a real person like yourself. So could you define ego? Sure. So when we're very young, most of us were raised by unconscious parents who never saw who it is we truly are. So we had to fake it to get their love. Mm -hmm. And we created a persona. So the persona of the pleaser or the comedian or the good one or the rebel. We create these personas to get that attention, to get that validation. But these are not our real personas because we are, if we got the attention, we won't create this. We create this to get the love that we never got. So in the creation of this persona comes a defense, it's called a defense. We create a shield or a layer and mm -hmm. that is called the ego. And most of us are in the role of parent through that ego. Now we're parenting out of ego. So suppose our ego with our own parents was to be the good girl. Then if we're parenting out of this ego, it'll still be our ideal to be the good one. So then if the kid makes us feel bad or the kid makes us uh, raise our voice because we don't like to raise our voice or the kid makes us say no because the kid doesn't listen right away or the kid may enters conflict, those are all against what we were raised with, which is I have to be good, I have to be lovely, I have to be kind. So then we get upset with the kid that you're making me do this. You know, why are you making me do this? I don't want to raise my voice. I don't want to say no. But sometimes we have to say no. But because we are parenting out of that ego of being the good one, we see our kid as disrupting that ego and the ego gets upset and lashes out. Mm -hmm. I see. See, this is where I can begin to understand. Uh, when you, I recently listened to a podcast you did with Russell Brand and, and you said your children are not your own. Um, can you describe this illusion that many parents may have? So many of us, raised in the traditional unconscious paradigm, believe that because the kid comes through our genetics for the most part, of course, some people adopt, that now we own them. They take our family name. We think we have the right to tell them everything about their destiny, everything about their ways of being. We feel like we own their state of mind, their state of heart, and we get to dictate them. And with this ownership comes compliance. So if the kid doesn't comply, we get really upset, like as if our dog, you know, dared to be somebody else's dog or dared to be a sheep. We're like, how dare you? We see the kid as property. We see the kid as our possession. And it's something that no parent wants to admit. It's very subtle, but it comes out when the kid rebels and dares to be their own person and we feel invalidated and we get upset. I did so much for you. I sacrificed so much for you. And how dare you marry whoever you want, right? Mm -hmm. It's as if, you know, because they came through us, because we gave them our clothing and shelter, we think now they are owing us their allegiance for every decision they make forward in their life. Mm -hmm. and I, I see that in, in the way we speak. We'll say, this is my kid. This is my son, my daughter. You know, it's kind of like an ownership thing where you feel like, you know, you're entitled to them as a human being, you know? And that's kind of where you start feeling like you can control it. I think when you come from that space, you think that it owes you 
and for you to actually be able to control it is you fulfilling that that probably that need in yourself at the end of the day right yeah and also remember we were controlled so now we're waiting to control yeah. someone else we think this is the way to be a good parent is mm-hmm. to completely micromanage and over identify with our children as if their feelings need to be our feelings their destiny is our destiny and as if their failures are our failures and their successes are our successes we've enmeshed ourselves so greatly with them that we cannot separate ourselves from them yep and that's that's kind of where you said something and it really i had an epiphany when i when i heard it you said we can see our children as facilitators of our own evolution and and you mentioned once that unidirectional view is shattered we we can discover that our children contribute to our growth in ways that are perhaps more profound than when we can contribute to theirs Yeah, it's all in a shift of perspective. You know, the old paradigm's perspective is that we are here to teach our kid. We are here to give them our valuable wisdom. Well, what a pity because then what are they giving us, right? So what they give us, what we want in return in the old paradigm is compliance, civility, you know, obedience, authority, dominance. But that's all serving the ego. Yeah. We should want things for the essence of who it is we are meaning we should want to grow to become better human beings that has nothing with control and dominance nothing to do with the ego so in order for us to grow with our children and learn from them it would mean we have to come down from this pedestal of the ego as a title and the parent as a title and shift into humility and co-mutuality mutual reciprocity co-circularity, communality, oneness with our children, one can be bigger and one can create the conditions more than the other, but it doesn't mean the smaller one can cannot teach the bigger one valuable life lessons. Mhm. That's a beautiful perspective. I I talk to my mom about that all the time because um I call her every day and now we've gotten to a point where You know, I'm always revealing to her new things that I've learned. She's always revealing to me new things that she's learned. And you know, it's a really rewarding relationship when you feel like uh, we both take accountability. If I take a if I make a mistake, I'll say, you know, I'll own that mistake. But then when we speak about her parenting ways in the past, she's more than happy to own that now, you know? And I can't I can't even put into words what that actually means to me because I feel our bond connecting even more so than I ever thought we, it could, you know? So right. it is a very rewarding perspective to kind of have this equality view even with the little humans. Yeah, she's given up her pedestal of all knowing and all righteousness and she's relating to you like a human now. And that's so freeing yeah. because till then you feel like you can't talk to this all-knowing person. You have to only get their approval. They're yeah. always right. and you can't really be free as a human yourself right because they're so perfectionistic and trying to be so controlling that you don't want to open up with such a person right you don't feel safe to be vulnerable wow and it's interesting cuz that that seems like it would limit the the parent child relationship at one point like it would be stagnant until that is actually developed 100% it gets stagnant and it becomes inauthentic it becomes sneaky lie based because the child senses that i can't be my true self in front of this person who's always wanting to be in control always wanting to see my actions as a reflection on them i can't even be my own person wow that's interesting next i want to ask you about 
the clinical setting with patients. You mentioned that many parents come to you. They usually aren't looking for a way to grow personally. Rather, they're eager to find answers to their children's behaviors and only focus on the child. I've been experiencing the same thing during my clinics. So I wanted to ask you, how do you transition that conversation with compassion and bring the focus back to the parent? Yeah, you have to say to them that... uh... You know, you understand how concerned they are. You connect with their concern and their fears. And you do this, you know, adult to adult, like you understand, you have compassion for them. But then you tell them that the best way you can help them is to help the parent first or Mm -hmm. along with the child. And then we show them this mirror effect that what is happening within the child is often a call for the parent to look in the mirror. doesn't mean that it's their fault because parents are very quickly defensive and they get all uh, upset that we're blaming them. That's not what we're doing. We're saying, let's see how you are perpetuating the dynamic without even realizing. Let's see how you are adding to this or how you're making it worse. And let's learn to see how we can control what we can control. We can't control our kid, really. We can't force the kid to change, but we can change. So let's take ownership of that piece. And I think when we talk with compassion and without judgment and we let the kid and the, the let the parent feel like they were not blaming them, then, you know, they're more open to taking responsibility. Ah, okay. I'll take notes. I'll actually remember that. Um, so one of the things that my wife and I, we learned is that understanding our partner's trauma is a love language. Once we developed a safe space where we could share our personal traumas, we realized it had a lot to do with the way that our parents raised us and inherently the way we would treat one another. Now, you call this emotional inheritance from our parents. And what we started noticing was If there were needs our parents didn't meet for us, then we'd literally act out those feelings of hurt and disappointment in different aspects of our adult lives. And sometimes we'd even project those things onto one another. In your experience, have you found this as a common theme in couples? Of course, of course. I talk about it all the time. I have courses on it. I do couples counseling all the time where we look at the other one to be the mother and the father. Mm-hmm. And we want the other one to be our daddy and, you know, our, you know, our savior, our rescuer, yeah. fix it. We don't want to grow up. We're like, you do all the work. But all of this is kind of subconsciously, emotionally, energetically projected onto the other. But the other one has the same agenda. So here you are in a war, you know, whose needs are more important? And couples yeah. get into this kind of fight. But what about me? But what about me? Because each one is looking to the other to be the one to fill them up. But really, they have to do this work on their own. They have to grow up on their own. They have to become powerful and autonomous on their own. And relationships are a wonderful mirror, powerful mirror, to look at the the wounding of the the inner child and grow yourself up. Absolutely. I I think it took us a long time to get to that point. But once we got to the space where we respect one another and we realize we're not responsible for the other person's happiness and we, we know each other's traumas, there's this level of trust now where if either one of us are acting out, we can respectfully just call each other out on it, and then we'll instantly go back into reflection. We'll go back into that that mirroring, and we'll think, okay, what part of my childhood 
is damaged and what part of that is being brought into this right now. And we could really shift the dynamic back to me having power over what I need to be doing. And it really took me away from you need to be doing this. Uh, you should do this for me. But more so then it's like, okay, I'm controlling what I can control and I'm going to focus on this part. And now that I feel safe with you and you know the things that have traumatized me, I can be open and honest about it. And, you know, we don't have kids yet, but we we speak a lot about your books and a lot of videos that we've watched. And we, we hope that facilitating that type of conversation can reflect in our parenting one day. Yeah, beautiful. You guys sound so enlightened and constructive and mature. That's amazing. Yes, good for you for doing that and using the mirror of the relationship to go inside instead of finger pointing and blaming and waiting for the other to change. That's just phenomenal. Well, there was a lot of finger pointing before that. So we'll, we could both attest to that. Yeah, that's that's our tendency because our parents pointed the finger to us. Yes. Our parents, you know, kept blaming us. So we learned to blame other people. You're you know, so we right. never learned to look inward because our parents never looked inward. They never took responsibility, you know. Oh. Yeah, as you say, as we uncover the ways in which our past drives us, we gradually become capable of parenting consciously. Yes. So, uh, one of my favorite quotes of yours, is, and I pray that I ask every day when I have children this, is, dare I go against the stream and parent from a place where the inner life is valued more than the external? What does that mean? It's really hard because culture has conditioned and indoctrinated us to care very much about what the external world thinks of us and says about us. But what this means is that you begin to be your own best confidant, you be your own best authority, you be your own parent, you be your own leader, really valuing yourself so much that you are complete onto yourself. Okay, that makes sense. Now, basically, when we believe that life happens outside of us, we have no control over it. We may think one day we're lucky, one day we're unlucky, but when we train ourselves to view life as a spiritual partner on our journey into our authentic being, we go within ourselves in search of the emotional lessons life is asking us to learn. From that perspective, everything that happens to us becomes meaningful, right? And this is something that I think I have to work on every day. I pray every morning, I meditate every morning, and I try to I ask God, the universe, allow me to control that which I can control, teach me to let go of that which I can't. And that allows me to go inward. And that allows me to focus on the things that I can work on. And, and it does help a little bit to not be affected by all the things that happen externally. And I could actually use a lot of those things as either a lesson or something to learn from. There's a lot of less guilt and shame, I think, when you come from that perspective. Yeah, when you look at everything as a journey, as an exploration, as an unfolding, as a blossoming, you know, then you're like, I'm blossoming. So I'm not expecting perfectionism. I only had three petals yesterday. Now I have seven. I am supposed to have 7,000. So I'm on my way. When you have this perspective, a long arc perspective of your life as a journey, you're not so hell-bent on these markers. Oh my God, I got a C grade. Oh my God, I didn't get this job. Because life is seen as a, a progression, mm-hmm. waves that crest and trough over a long period of time. And you're here to go for the ride and you're here to experience life, not to just get from life. You're here to actually experience whatever life is throwing for you. So it's a very different perspective, but that perspective makes, a, is, makes all the difference, can create the shift from lack to abundance. 
Exactly. I think that could teach our kids to mirror that at one point, too, and they might not get as impacted by the external things as well. Yeah, they're going to fall prey to culture just like we did, but we can at least provide that other voice to say, hey, 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 don't believe all of that. That's a lie. That's misleading. That's racist. That's pejorative to women. And we can provide this perspective, you know? That makes sense. So next, I wanted to discuss a, a case that you mentioned in your book that had to do with your friend Anya and her daughter Jessica, who began cutting herself at one point. And, and you mentioned Anya, the mother. She said, when my daughter yells at me, I feel the way I did when my mother yelled at me. When she slams the door on me and shuts me out of her world, I feel as though I'm being punished, like I did something wrong. Every time my daughter makes me feel like my parents made me feel, it's as if my whole world crashes. How did you unlock her unconsciousness in that situation and just reveal to her how Jessica may have been triggering her? Jessica wasn't triggering her. You see, oh. it, it's Anya says that she made me feel that way. No one makes us feel any way. We feel the way we feel because the past is coming into the present. So we think that the person in front of us is triggering us, but the person in front of us doesn't even know what our old wounds are. And so suppose the person in front of us says, you know what, your hair is just not suiting your face. Now that could be, sure, a little bit pokey of a comment, but you don't have to fall apart. We fall apart maybe because our mother always told us our hair was terrible, right? So it's like the trauma load, depending on how the load is, we react. So in this case, Jessica was just being Jessica, but because it reminded Anya of her past trauma load, Anya felt very traumatized, triggered, and blamed Jessica. Jessica was just one more person in the long line of people who made Anya feel that way. But Jessica was just being Jessica. You know, I always say there is no trigger on the outside. The trigger is on the inside. I learned something new there. Um, when my wife and I, we became aware of triggers, we realized there was like landmines everywhere and that's what was leading to the disarray. And I think that it's really important that if I'm being triggered, I, I own that trigger. And it's not you're triggering me or something external is triggering me, but rather maybe I can ask the question, why is this trigger occurring inside of me? What part of my past or what part of my experiences is bringing this out of myself? Uh, that I just learned that right now, so I, I think that you know that might be really useful. Yeah, you can, it's never on the outside. The fact that we react strongly is always because there was a wound inside. Wow. Otherwise, we would be able to react with calm, with sure with curiosity sure with a little annoyance maybe but because we freak out like that the way we do that's a sign that uh oh some big landmine inside has been tripped. Yeah. wow that's so cool okay and, and you wrote if you understand that the inappropriate behavior of your children is a call to increase consciousness on your part you're able to view the opportunities they afford you to grow differently instead of reacting to them you look within yourself and ask why you react in the asking you open the space for consciousness to arise yeah and it's hard it's hard to break these reactivity cycles because they come so automatically because that's how we were programmed as children to defend ourselves defend ourselves so it's quite natural every time we feel under attack we're going to use those primitive mechanisms but we're going to actually perpetuate the same pattern in our life as well okay next i wanted to talk about the power of vulnerability 
Uh, you mentioned when a child never gets to witness its parents in a state of weakness or childishness, uh, let alone being simple, fumbling, bumbling human beings, how can this child risk revealing its own weaknesses? So how important is it for parents to be open and honest about their own weaknesses around their children? Very important for the parent to be a human. Now, you don't have to tell your kid every detail of your drug-induced, you know, 20s, but you definitely need to not act as if you're so amazing and you never made any mistakes. You know, they don't need to know the details. They just want, they don't really want to know about your life so much. It's just about your attitude. You know, do you remember being a 17-year-old? Do you remember being confused? Do you remember being messy and untidy and forgetful? You know, but if you're going to act like you were never like that, then the teenager or the kid is going to feel withdrawn and judged. That, you know, I grew up in a household where one of my parents definitely uh, never showed weakness, you know, and never showed that they, they had any flaws. And that put a lot of pressure on me because I felt like then I had to be perfect, you know, and I felt like I couldn't, I didn't have this room for error because my parent doesn't even make errors, you know, and that... That was tough. It was, it was tough to kind of navigate through the world and eventually realize that it's okay to make mistakes. And there's an actual process where I can learn to love my mistakes and errors. I can learn to learn from them and they can become opportunities at one point, you know? So um, had to I had to learn that on my own though. And that's uh, the hope is that we can pass that forward. So. Yeah, this, this, you know, because the, your parents were also not seen as humans by their own by his own parents or her own parents. So she created a mask of perfectionism in order to feel valued and validated and worthy and strong. Mm -hmm. So now that mask obstructs their children from feeling them as human. And then the, the story goes on, right? Till somebody wakes up in one generation and breaks the pattern. Mm -hmm. you know, we, we spoke about triggers and what we could learn from our triggers. And you wrote, when we are raised to suppress our darker emotions, these emotions form a shadow which we are cut off from. When emotions are split from our consciousness, they lie dormant, ready to be activated at a moment's notice, which is why so many of us erupt into the blue and get triggered. So what is the wisdom we can learn from each of our triggers? Well, that when, when we're really triggered, we need to take stock and go within and go, wow. What happened to me? Like what in me got triggered that badly? What in me feels so helpless like a child? How can I grow up? When we begin to heal that, we begin to honor our inner child, the child that was neglected. And we begin to allow that voice to come forth in a clear and direct way. Mm -hmm. Maybe that child will say, you know what? This relationship is not good for me. I feel too unsafe. And we begin to dialogue with the inner child. Yeah. In this way, we don't suppress the inner child over and over again. Most of us put the inner child down because the inner child was so hurt as a child. So we have created this ego. The ego is a big stamper against the, the authentic feelings of our inner child. So we suppress, we suppress, we suppress, and then we act out. We just blast out in order to get those needs met. And that's not healthy. So day by day, moment by moment, whenever there's a big trigger, we need to go within and as much as we can to process it, to heal the wound that it's calling to heal and integrate it into our consciousness, not suppress it and run away. 
I, and reparenting is what comes to mind. Um, yeah. There's a meditation that that I like to do, especially when I know that I'm having some inner turmoil and I don't have words for it. Um, sometimes during my meditations in the mornings, I'll actually go back and speak with my inner child. And what's so cool about your inner child is you know that child better than anybody because it's you. You know, yeah. so the way that you could speak with that child is there's a lot of telepathy going on because you're like, I know what you're going through, but I can literally reparent the aspects of the damaged child in me needed some needs to be met from either my mother or father. And when I'm able to be an adult space for that child and that child gets to express itself, I do see that that does impact actually every relationship that I that I have and every interaction that I have as well. Yeah, the unmet needs of your little inner person inside you that's still buried there those unmet needs are dictating your life. So the sooner you can meet those needs, the more able you will be to make empowered, clear, and conscious choices. Otherwise, those needs and the ego will keep ruling the path and destruct being destructive. Mm -hmm. uh, next question is, you wrote, if you were bullied as a child, unless we have resolved our own pain, we will be unable to tolerate our children's pain when they are bullied. In such a situation, we're likely to foster in our children an inability to handle their emotions. Um, what are some steps we can take to begin to resolve and integrate our own pain? You know, first see it as, a, as an issue to integrate, right? So you see it because you realize you're being dysfunctional. You realize you're, you're always in trauma. You're always in turmoil. You're always reacting. So you become aware that you need to stop and you want to take a new path. And you go back to the painful experiences in your life, like being bullied, for example, and then you begin to go back to those feelings that were never taken care of and empower that person so that that person feels healed. The person inside you that was damaged feels heard, feels understood, feels seen by you so that it doesn't feel the need to act out. So the way it would act out, for instance, if your kid got bullied, it would bring up your own feelings about it. Yeah. However you have feelings about it, either that you're the, you were the wrong one or the bully is the wrong one, it's going to come out. And that's an opportunity for you to say, wow, why am I reacting like this? Did I have an issue with being bullied? And then you can go backwards and realize, yeah, that my kid said I got bullied and I lost my temper. I wanted to call the police. I wanted to call the school principal. And they're like, why am I acting so weird? Right? Many times we're anxious. We don't realize it. And we've eaten a whole chocolate. And you're like, how yeah. did I do that? How did I spend 10 hours in front of Netflix? Because there was something underneath that was not being addressed. And now you're being asked to address it. If you're brave, you can address it. Go back, ask yourself what from my past is influencing my present. And you can heal that. And in respect to that, it really does show that our children can be mirrors to us for things that we haven't processed, you know, and I never really, I don't have children yet. So when, when you just wrote this in your book where it was like, okay, if they get bullied, how am I going to react if I was really bullied? And you realize all the unprocessed trauma that I'm going to have is going to start coming out when I'm going to have children, because how am I going to teach them to process those things if I haven't done it for myself? Right. And is that, but, but you don't have to do everything because you can't do everything. So it's okay. As long as when the child brings it up and you're like, Oh, oh I'm reacting. What's going on with me. You're willing to look within and, okay. and go and do your work. And that's how you can use the parenting journey as an opportunity to discover more about who you are. 
That makes sense. And that, that I like that approach because then you don't have to be so harsh on yourself to try and make sure you got it all figured out, you know? Exactly. Um, so, so then how do you recommend we begin to handle our children's pain when they do go through tough situations? Trusting that this is going to make them more authentic, more real, that feelings are just feelings. Uh, pain is part of life, but mm-hmm. enduring suffering doesn't have to be. And it's okay. This is how they're going to actually grow. This is how their heart is going to open. This is how they're going to understand life. We can't avoid pain from our children's lives. We can't detract them from life being tough. Life is not easy. And if they encounter pain, that's authentic. So why rob them of the pain? Let them go through the pain with us. We're going to, we're going to be right there with them. You know, that makes so much sense because sometimes... I'm I'm a first year resident doctor, you know, and we we work a lot. Like there'll be weeks I'm putting in like 80, 85 hours. And I'll call my mom at the end of the day. I'm just like, mom, today my brain is so foggy. I'm so tired. I work so hard. And she used to she used to be like, no, but don't don't talk about those things. You know, it's okay. You don't have to feel those things. And there was one day where I just like I was like, mom, I have to draw a boundary. When I'm expressing these things, it's not because I'm, I'm helpless. Like I'm just saying them because I need to express them. What would be really nice is if you just held space for me and you're like, yo, I can see why you feel that way. Like I wanna hold space. I see you, I hear you. And just by you listening to me actively and seeing that that's how I feel, rather than invalidating how I feel, mom, I feel like I would feel better after that. And literally, like I said that to her one time. And then after that, she started changing. She started just holding space. And that's what shows you how much a mom really loves you. You know, like she's willing to take that constructive criticism. And she's like, whoa, like I didn't know that my intention will shift right away, you know, and because we want to fix it. She wanted to fix it. She's like, don't talk like that, because she thinks if she says that, that will erase your feelings and you won't feel bad, you know? So she was trying to protect you because she was having so much discomfort Mm -hmm. with the experience that her child was in that experience. But you're such an enlightened young man to be able to say that to her so lovingly, you know? You're just amazing. I love my mama, you know? That's that's where a lot of my good comes from, so. Yeah, but where did you learn to awaken? Where where did you learn to, uh, you know, go within? And how come you've taken it so seriously? I had a lot of childhood trauma uh, growing up. I actually didn't know, but you know, when I learned about the aces, I realized mine was like an eight or a nine. And I was like, whoa, like I had a messed up childhood. Uh, I was really disassociated. I didn't have memories of like my traumas. I just acted different, you know? And I think around 15, my only defense mechanism I had was positivity. And it was like malignant positivity where any anything that would happen, I would just be like, no, like it's gotta be a positive reason. And I know at the time I didn't have any other resources, so that kind of helped me learn to deal with things. But then as I got older, I realized I wasn't addressing those, the other side, the dark side, the things that were actually hurting me. Um, And it wasn't until I started meditating every day, which was probably around 21 years old. That's when I started actually every morning, I, I started having a routine where, you know, I'll do breath work, I'll have mantras, and then I'll, I'll pray. And I'd like to pray in a freestyle where I'll focus on certain aspects of my life that are happening either right now or in the past. And now it's kind of to the point where I realize I'll never be perfect, you know, but I can have something set in place every morning where I I do set myself up to be the best version of myself every day. Um, It wouldn't have been possible if I didn't pray every day. Uh, and I learned that from my mom because she prayed every day. So like, uh, I think you're from India as well, right? Yes, yes. 
Yeah, so I'm really blessed because uh, I grew up in California. Like I didn't, I've only been to India one time. But the beauty of our culture is like spirituality is celebrated. It's normal. Um, you know, my mom always talked about God and it was always just a normal thing. So to me, it wasn't really unnatural to to get out of my comfort zone and to just start meditating and praying. And I really think that that's the only thing that keeps me grounded every day. That's beautiful. That's really special. Thank you. I, I feel seen. <laughs> yeah. Funny. Lastly, um, let's talk about the mid to later teens for children. Uh, my parents were immigrants from India, like I just mentioned, and I, I grew up in the States. By the time I became a teenager, uh, my parents never relinquished their need to control me. So from like my 14s to like 20 years old, I really rebelled against them in many ways. I stopped sharing with them who I was becoming. And it really impacted our relationship together because I, it's not like I didn't want to connect with them. I just felt like they'd never understand. So is there any advice for parents who must make this transition? How, how can they make that transition? Yeah, it's so pivotal that we parents of teenagers understand that we need to move from center stage to the wings and we need to relinquish power back to the kid we cannot control their mind. We cannot brainwash them. We need, it's actually to their advantage that they fall apart and take risks because better they do it under your care than without your care. And the more you can tell your teen that you trust their own right over their own life and their own body, their own mind, you're actually giving them valuable empowerment. Wow. If you keep controlling them, you're actually infantilizing them and robbing them of that very crucial developmental need that they have, which is to be the leaders of their own life, finally. No one likes to be commanded and puppeteered all their life. You rebelled, they will rebel. Mm -hmm. So it's up to the parent. If they want to have a rebellious kid who shuts down and withdraws, then they can go ahead and control their kid. Or they have a kid who is open and free and uh, feel safe to make mistakes, then you have to relinquish control. You know, there's always a give and a take. You can't do everything and expect everything the same way, you know? It reminds me of when I was like 16 and I was dating girls and I wanted to tell my mom, like, I like this girl, but in my culture, it's like, you're not allowed to date until you get married. It really makes no sense. You know, in the Indian culture, they're always afraid of being embarrassed by other families. If they find out something, like if I'm dating a girl, they don't know, but then my uncle finds out and he tells them they're mad. And I, I was telling them like, hey, if I'm able to communicate with you directly, then you don't have to worry and have this right. fear, you know, of, of you finding out from the outside world because we can just communicate. And that was like foreign to them at the time. So I, I don't know how, what, what they learned in India. You know? <laughs> yeah, you know, they were they were slaves to their parents. So they just expected yeah. to be a slave to them. They just, they were not open to a new way. And here you come and you're teaching them new ways. Well, kudos to them for being open to listening. True, true. Thank you, Dr. Shafali. So now we're going to move into the last and most popular portion of our podcast. Uh, we have audience questions. So we had so many audience questions submitted for you through Instagram. Our team didn't know where to cut them off. So we trimmed them down and we, we got down to the six best questions. So question number one came from Naseem. She asked, how can parents discuss sex and what it is with their kids? Well, you know, it, it depends on the maturity of the kid and... <laughs> You know, every kid is going to find out about it on their own through their friends and social media. But, you know, I think more than discussing it up front, it's being open to 
our own bodies, being open to accepting sex as a part of life, vital part of life, and leaving it at that rather than necessarily feeling like you have to have a discussion until and unless it comes up organically in the kid's life. Mm-hmm. Once your kid is 17 or 20, sure, you can bring it up, but most kids will be too embarrassed to talk to you about it. So what's better is let them come to you with it, but they'll only come to you if you're open and easy and modern and non-hyped about it, non-exaggerating about it, non-dramatic about it. That's going to be tough. Yeah, I, I don't know how I'm going to handle that part. Um, question number two is by Rakim. He asks, do you pray? Do you meditate? Yes, I meditate and do a lot of time on my own in quiet. I walk in nature and make it a priority for myself. Okay. Is that something you do every day? Uh-huh. Every single day, yes. Cool. Well, that's good to know. Uh, question number three is by Sarah. Any advice on how to effectively deal with family and social isolation during this time? Well, uh, you know, to use this moment to actually go within and actually allow for that slight pause and reset and not look at it as a negative, but look at it as a powerful opportunity to connect with yourself, go within and, yeah, stay in touch with people through old-fashioned ways of letter writing or email or phone calls And now we have FaceTime and, you know, so we can use social media. But more than looking at this as a as a missing of the the regular is to look at it as how can I go within and take advantage of this time to connect to myself? Wow. That's so true. We are so connected just because of technology, you know, like we can Skype, we can FaceTime. We're more connected than ever, but then we also have that disconnect from within, you know, so I definitely agree with that. Question number four was an anonymous submission asking, any advice for daughters with unconscious mothers who are actively working to reparent themselves, especially with boundary setting? Yeah, you know, that's that's a loaded question, but, (laughs) you know... With daughters, it's so important for mothers to, if they can, to embody, you know, power and good boundaries and worth and autonomy. You know, women especially have been raised to be so enmeshed, so dependent, so needy, that it's so important to teach our daughters that they are independent, that they're capable, that they're strong. They don't need anyone to define who it is they are. Mm -hmm. Question five is by Amina. What is the greatest lesson being a mother has taught you? Um, that I, I have this life to choose to live in fear and in seeking approval from others, or I can live this life to my best powerful self uh, where I untether from the validation and need to belong to others or get my sense of worth from others. Wow. Yeah. Um, my wife is a huge fan of yours because you're a really strong, independent woman. And that's, uh, that's, that's beautiful. I'm, I'm grateful that, that you share that with us. Um, question number six is by Unkit. My parents are from India. I was born and raised in New York. My parents want me to have a large Indian wedding, but my fiance and I want to have a small private event. That has been the case for many of my friends Uh, But we're too afraid to disappoint our parents. Do you have any advice? Yeah, well, I always say that to follow your own voice, you're going to disappoint people. So you have to decide how much you want to follow your voice. It's going to come with a price. 
Wow. Yeah, that's that's a tough one. I feel like a lot of a lot of people right now are really going through that, especially us first generation. We grew up here, but our parents are from India where there's different values almost, you know, so very different, very shockingly different. Yes, very shock. And, you know, for Ankit, my wife and I had a small private wedding, even though my parents wanted us to have a large wedding. But uh, communication was the key there. I let my parents know from the beginning, the start that, listen, like, I know you guys want to invite everybody and their mom and you want to spend $200,000 on this wedding. But to us, like our values kind of align with keeping it small. As long as my mom, my dad, my sister are there, like those are the only people that I really, really want there and the few closest to me. So um, advocate for yourself, you know, and do it early, do it early welcome them into that. Um, we started that conversation years before it actually happened. And eventually, I think their love for me uh, outweighed their wants and needs. It is possible out there. It um, is. It is. And Dr. Shafali, last question, a question that we've asked every single one of our guests on this podcast. What is your definition of medspiration? I think it's to understand the mind-body-soul connection and that we are creative beings and we are capable of living this very inspired life. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we really appreciate your time. Thank your you. Efforts. We acknowledge everything you do for the world. Um, you're out here. I'm sure you hear every day now how many lives you change. But it, it literally, like my wife and I were both physicians and we take on board all the things you teach us. And those are things that help us in our own lives, but also help us as clinicians. So I just want you to know your impact. It's, it's reaching probably farther than you could ever imagine. So thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. I really appreciate it. There you have it, folks. I hope you guys left this one feeling med-spired. If you learned something new or if you genuinely enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate it five stars. Medspiration is a 501c3 nonprofit charity organization. The more you help us grow, the more people we're able to help. Let's make a commitment together, guys, and attempt to live a healthier lifestyle, mentally, physically, and spiritually. And as always, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and do something med-spiring.